Let's pray. God, we thank you and we count it a privilege to read stories in your word of of things that happened long ago that have relevance to us today. So Lord, I ask that you'd open our ears, you'd open our hearts to understand what you have for us in this text. And this I pray, amen. I find it very uh, significant that this week our title is called Cross-Cultural Evangelism. And I think it's very important and very significant to understand that it follows last week on our uh, sermon in evangelism about doing good and evangelism. So this is very significant because last week I mentioned that in order to actually present the gospel, we have to be actually changed by the gospel ourselves. So in our text this morning, I actually find this text very, very significant to myself personally on multiple levels. Firstly, it's the context. I lived for a better part of a decade, 10 minutes from where these events took place. You can still see the ancient stairs carved into the cliff face as you walk to the top of the Areopagus. You can stand there and you can see right below you where Paul walked and conversed with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. You can see where he reasoned in the marketplace and you can actually still see the objects of worship straight ahead is the temple of of Hephaestus. We see he was a metallurgy god and and to this massive behemoth right beside you and right to your right is this Acropolis that's dedicated to the goddess Athena. Now, as you close your eyes, as you stand there, as you close your eyes, you can imagine yourself amongst the philosophers. You could be seated on the marble formation that forms a natural amphitheater. And as we read Paul's words here, you can close your eyes, you can sit there and hear his voice on the wind as he's pleading with you. Now, the second thing that strikes me about this text is the methodological poise that Paul uses here. What we have here is probably one of the most brilliant bits of contextualization the Bible presents to us. In many ways, this text has informed much of what I've done and how I've taught the gospel to people. And I believe that this text is also a blueprint for us to engage with people in our time 2,000 years later. Now, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we're scared of this whole topic of evangelism, aren't we? It freaks us out. Like, we're in a cancel culture. What if we say the wrong thing and we get canceled? In fact, the thought of cross-cultural evangelism makes it even worse. Like, we're colonial destroyers. And so, what we do is we just kind of close up shop and we don't do anything. Or, we relegate that to the specialist weirdo freak, you know, job. You know, everybody's got an Uncle Bob who's gone overseas. It's a crazy missionary, right? I'm an Uncle Bob. So, we think Paul's words here are not relevant to us. And, you know, it's hashtag not my skill set. How many people think that cross-cultural evangelism is only for an Uncle Bob that goes overseas? Now, that is a very specific and very accurate and very appropriate use of cross-cultural evangelism. Missionary engagement is something that we as Christians should do, but it's not the whole thing that we as Christians should do. Some of us engage just in different parts of the globe. See, Cross-cultural evangelism and the missionary context should not overshadow the universality reality of this axiom of our cross-cultural evangelism. So what do I mean by that? So this morning, in order for us to understand, we need to look at a couple of things. We need to look at the premise of cross-cultural evangelism. In other words, you know, what is it? And secondly, we need to know know the uh, outworking of cross-cultural evangelism. In other words, how we do it. 
Turn with me, if you have, to uh, your Bibles with you, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week I articulated that in the Old Testament we see a growing, a longing, an expectation that a Messiah, a Savior, would come and would liberate people from their sin. One that who would have free the oppressed, the enslaved. And like the coming dawn, Jesus comes, he bursts forth onto the scene, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he reconciles mankind to God. For those that believe in his name, there is restoration, there is forgiveness from sins, and in his name, we become a new community. A new people of God, a new nation grafted into the people of Israel, and we become a distinct people, a people of God. So in 1 Peter, 9, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, rather, writing to a group of non-Jewish Christians, Peter writes this, he says, but you are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage at war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In a very real and in a very profound way, if you believe in this Jesus, that he died for you, you receive mercy. You become part of a people of God's own possession. And Peter says here that we have a new distinction now. One is sojourners and exiles. Another translation says aliens and strangers. If you are a Christian, you are part of God's people. You are an exile, a sojourner, a foreigner, an alien in this present world. And therefore, as you live, as you work, as you do your job, as you raise your children, as you go buy groceries, everything you do in a biblical sense puts you at odds with the world. This is why I think this is crazy missionaries kind of seem to understand this maybe a little better than the rest of us. You see, in Jesus, we are a distinct community. We belong to Christ, and therefore we live and we proclaim Jesus to broken and hurting people, not from a place of strength, not from a place of power, but from a place of, of being in exile. You see, the gospel is good news about Jesus, and it's always been a cross-cultural message. Paul understood this reality as he preached upon this Areopagus to a specific, educated, philosophical Greek context. In his famous writing in 1 Corinthians, he explains his methodology this way. He says, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says, For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people by all means that I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel and I, that I might share with them its blessings." Christ City, Paul here is describing cross-cultural evangelism. 
As we transition to our second point, we must have a clear understanding of this, that we are foreigners, that we are exiles in this world. And this message that we bring and we live out transcends all cultures, yet at the same time must be contextualized into specific cultures to be heard and to be believed and to be obeyed. Evangelism has always been cross-cultural. So if we understand this, that it must be contextualized to be heard and obeyed and believed, so how does one do that then? How does one do that? How does one be all things to all people, as Paul asserts? What are the nuts and bolts of cross-cultural evangelism? And this is where I think our text here in Acts chapter 17 gives us a fairly good, significant blueprint for that. We see in this interaction with Paul, we see three things that he does. He enters the culture, he challenges the culture, and then he appeals to the culture with the gospel of Christ. So he enters. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 again. Now, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. See, we, we see here Paul entering in, observing the culture understanding. Before he preached, before he reasoned in the synagogue, he entered into the culture. He had to understand it. See, Paul was, you know, Greek speaking, but that doesn't mean he understood the nuance of an Athenian culture. Our text says that when he observed and entered in, oh, his spirit was provoked within him. He was moved to the core of who he was by the idols that were there. You see, I have missionary friends working all over the globe, in many different cross-cultural settings. So for kicks and giggles this week, I phoned a number of them and said, okay, I'm preaching a sermon on cross-cultural evangelism. What is one sentence that you want my context to know? Interestingly enough, to a person, this was the general consensus. Before you speak, listen and learn. Before you speak, listen and learn. See, of first importance, we must enter into a culture. We must listen and we must learn. We must do that in order to articulate and study their objects of worship, as Paul did. Is it money? Is it power? Is it political influence? Is it sports? Is it a specific political ideology? What is it? You know, what are their people's hopes and dreams? What does success look like in this culture? What are the greatest fears? Where, does, where is failure most at present? What are the universal beliefs about life and of death? How do people celebrate things like marriages and, and, and other significant cultural moments? Where do people spend their time and where do people spend their money? Effective communication of the gospel is dependent on our ability to adapt to the conceptuality of the hearers. In other words, by listening and learning, we can understand so that the illustrations that we use <laughs> are from the here social world. Now, it'd be fun if I go onto the street and I'm giving an illust gospel illustration about some obscure dolphin race in the north of GNC, I probably have most people going, I'd lose them, right? It's obvious. The second thing is, is that we need to have, and the questions that we raise are actually in their comfort zone. When I first moved back from Greece, see, Greece has a, you know, here we've got a three-foot bubble, right? So if you enter into the three-foot bubble... What do you do? You back up. You enter into the bubble, you back up. So when I first came back from Greece, I would speak in churches, and I would realize I would back people into the corner, and then I'm like, oh, 
I'm too close, sorry. Yeah, we need to have, we need to have, we need to have emotions expressed in their comfort zone. But we also need to have the questions and issues that we address relevant to them. You see, a lot of my, uh, I would be so frustrated. I'd be in Greece and I'd be like, I'd, be, I'd show up an appointment, a one o'clock appointment, I would show up at five to one. My Greek friends would show up at like 150. And I'd be so frustrated and I would give them grief all the time. I'm like, you're not being very biblical in your time management. And they would always say to me, dude, you've got the management, we've got the time. So we need to have, we need to have the questions and issues addressed in their actual that are relevant to them. See, by listening, by learning, we're trying to determine what part of their life they're actually believing biblical principles and they don't even know it. And we're also trying to determine what part of their lives are actually rejecting biblical principles that are godless, that need to be addressed. The reason for this is thus. If, I want, if somebody is going to reject the message of Jesus Christ, I want them to reject this message, not because I was an idiot or a jerk, not because I presented it in the wrong way, not because I was insensitive to them, but I want them to reject the message of Jesus Christ because of the absolute claims of Jesus Christ, not by how I presented it. And so as you can imagine, we need to enter into a context by listening and learning, and this takes effort, and this takes time. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, Heath, that's fine in theory. I conceptually understand that. Well, what does that actually look like in real time? How do I do that with my neighbors? You know, I'm not Paul. We're not in Athens. You know, hashtag not my skill set. So let's put some wheels on this bus. And I would like to give us an illustration of a conversation that I had, ironically, on Wednesday, as I was trying to make my way to the downtown east side to cook. So I'm loading up the van. And I've had conversations with a neighbor of mine who lives about a block away. So I'm loading up the van with my gear because we're doing a barbecue. And he says, hey, are you the guy with the black triumph? I'm like, oh, yeah. See, I noticed a, a while ago this guy had bought a new gray triumph. And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. So, so I say to him, you got a new triumph too, didn't you? And he's like, oh, you noticed. And so we have a wonderful 10-minute conversations on the waxing eloquently on the brilliance of British motorcycles. But after about 10 minutes, I decide that I'm going to change the tack and I'm purposely and specifically ask him a bunch of questions. And he begins right there on the street to tell me his whole story. From brokenness and drug addiction, uh, punk music scene of the late 80s, uh, to currently working in the, in the uh, movie business, this guy bears it all out there. Then, though, he becomes really passionate when he starts to tell me of his engagement in social justice work. This guy is a sharp. All of you have deadpan faces because you have no idea what that is. Don't worry, neither did I. That's why I had to Google it. A sharp is a skin head against racial prejudice. Yeah, never met one of those guys before. And so... <laughs> He's telling me about all the things he's done and all the, you know, the fights that he's got into. And this guy, he's so passionate and he's so concerned about racial injustice that he's just there. And in the span of 45 minutes, I now understand his history. I understand his hopes, his dreams, the social issue he's, he's passionate about. And all of it is in real time, in a real relationship, and it's not forced and it doesn't feel coerced. And you don't feel like some sort of loser that's trying to glean somebody for information. 
You see, he invites me on a motorcycle ride, and he is going to introduce me to his sharp friends. Not sure what that's going to mean, but that's okay. See, to be clear here, not all of my conversations are this fruitful. Do not expect this every single time you talk to somebody. Sometimes it takes many conversations over months and even years to get what I got in 45 minutes. But understand, we still need to engage. We need to listen and we need to learn. You see, we have to ask questions. We have to have questions of what people believe and what they think. You see, this man's passion for advocating against racial prejudice betrays a desire for justice, which is biblical. Yet at the same time, his punk rock lifestyle, his boots up to his knees, it displays a godless personal, personal autonomy, rather, which is incongruous with social justice. This is what exactly Paul did in Athens in Acts chapter 17 when he walked around the city. So now, this is where things get a little tricky. It's essential to listen and to learn before we challenge the culture. If we don't, our assessment and our criticism of culture will have no power to persuade. And sometimes, you know, the, the answers that we give or the challenges that we engage in will actually be moot point because it's not anything that they're dealing with. And we create unnecessary offense. So once we've entered the culture, we actually have now the tools and the information to challenge the culture effectively. Let's look back at our text, starting at verse 22. I know this is a long text and a long read, but bear with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I, also, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as, it, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That though they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul listens. Paul learns, and he does something really amazing here. On one hand, he affirms their desire and striving and their worship. At the same time, he challenges them and says that their objects of worship were misplaced. The thing that they were striving for, the thing that they're seeking, and what they worship in ignorance is actually known. In fact, he's the creator and sustainer of all life. He's God himself. And Paul says, what you're searching for is actually not far from us. And then he does the most amazing thing. He, creates, he, he, uh, he quotes a Cretan poet and a Greek poet. He says, in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. You realize that in the canon of the Bible, we have Greek philosophers now because of Paul. That's really amazing. He uses their own words to his advantage. He listened and he learned. And when given the opportunity to speak at the Areopagus, he was able to challenge their beliefs, their ideas, on their own terms, using their own ideas and their own people with their own words. If Paul had not entered the culture, 
his challenge would not have been effective and would not have had the same force as it did. See, my questions to my triumph-loving friend, my listening and my learning, are so that when given the opportunity, I can with accurate understanding affirm in his participation in social justice work. Well, at the same time, I can challenge his lifestyle as an ineffective means to justice. See, challenging is difficult, isn't it? Because of one reason. We have to cross the friendship barrier. That's what I call it. See, particularly now, we avoid challenge because we, we are at risk of offending. Offense can be volatile. It might get us canceled. And by default, we, we don't risk, we don't challenge, and therefore we don't offend. So this is why we can't stop with just entering and challenge. We can't leaving, leave people hanging with our own moral assertions. That's irresponsible. What we need is to appeal to the listeners with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need something outside of ourselves to help us. We need to appeal to them with Jesus. Appealing to the listeners is showing them that the answers to their deepest, darkest problems, ones that they haven't even articulated to anyone, that those answers are only solved in the work of Jesus. In our text, Paul leaves the Athenians here with the reality of what they're truly looking for is in a person who is resurrected, Jesus Christ. Paul says to them, your striving is good, but it's misplaced. Let me introduce you to the one you are really looking forward to. And you notice, some of them rejected and some of them accepted. Let's look at verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul entered the Athenian context. He challenged their misplaced worship. He affirmed what they were truly longing for was in Jesus and his resurrection. In the end, the best cross-cultural evangelism is where our cultural knowledge overlaps with our love for people, that, and that converges with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I don't engage my neighbor in some sort of evangelistic manipulation because I don't really have a superior worldview or an ideology outside of Jesus. I'm not a religious car salesman. I engage, I enter, I challenge, and I affirm because I believe that his direct involvement, my neighbor's direct involvement in social activism, what he's, really, what he's really craving for deep down, that things are broken and he does not know how to put it back together and I need to present to him that that is solved through Jesus. You see, deep down, he doesn't realize that even in his social activism, he's broken as well. I engage because I know, because I'm broken as well. I know that the answers to his deepest longings are in Jesus. And I don't need to shave my head and become a, a sharp to do that. See, just as Paul proclaims the power of the resurrection on the Areopagus, so I, given the opportunity, must proclaim this same power to my neighbor. It's only through this power, through the saving work of Jesus, that issues of ra racial injustice can be solved. It starts with us repenting. 
repenting of our own autonomy and, and surrendering the lives, our lives, in the areas which we try to accomplish things on our own merit. The goal of cross-cultural evangelism is to proclaim to those around us that the answer to their deepest longing is found only in Jesus Christ. This is why we must enter, by listening and learning. This is why we must challenge and put our big person pants on and actually do that. And this is why we have the power to do that when we appeal through Jesus Christ. Christ City, I realize that this is difficult. We have a hard time with evangelism. This is not easy. This is complex evangelism. You see, evangelism is like watching a six-year-old learning to play a saxophone. Yeah, picture that. It's not a Duke Silver moment. It's a disaster. It sounds horrible. It's off-key. It's out of time. But after practice, much practice, there's something that resembles a tune. And after a while longer, there's something that actually, it's like, wow, that's a song. And after a while, you can have smooth jazz. See, there's an expression that says, what doesn't come naturally to us is a discipline. Christ City, I'll just be honest with you. For all of us, myself included, I am not naturally gifted in evangelism. This is a discipline for me. And I'm sure it's a discipline for you. So where do we begin? How do we start? How do we challenge? How do we enter? How do we affirm? Where do we begin? Well, last week, I challenged you um, to begin by praying. And this week, I believe the answer is the same. We need to begin to we need to begin to pray. Today, I would like for you to engage in a spiritual rhythm that I practice regularly. I would like for you in your prayer life to ask God to provoke you, to stir within you in the lives of others where their idols are. Ask God for a love and a compassion. And secondly, ask him, pray for opportunities to not only speak and engage, but to actually present Jesus to them. Because I know when you, when you pray these prayers, things like Wednesday happen. And not only Wednesday, but 15 other, day, other conversations in the past two weeks. So I challenge you to pray for opportunities to speak. Let's pray. God, we recognize that we are wholly incapable of doing this on our own. We recognize it is by your gospel that we are a distinct community. We are exiles. And Lord, I ask that you forgive us when we have not acted as your community. Lord, I ask that you empower us, that you change our hearts anew, that you give us a passion that we would present, that we would be brave, that we would circumnavigate the pitfalls and the landmines that our culture presents and that we'd be able to, re to present you, that we could worship you as a community. So Lord, I thank you for this time. We can highlight something that's dear to my heart. So in that I pray, in your name, by your son who is at your right hand, amen. So as we close, we're going to respond in a few ways. We will sing, we will give. Uh, there's a give table at the back. If, you, if Christ City is your home, you could give there. If you're a visitor and if Christ City is not your home, that's okay. It's something we do as a community. Lastly, if, if you'd like prayer, there will be somebody at the back waiting and willing to pray for you. Or alternatively, you can email me, heath at christcitychurch.ca, and I would love to pray with you and for you. And lastly, we will take communion together as an outward sign of 
us, our lives being changed by, by God. So in this event in communion, that we actually confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We confess that he has made us a new people. We confess that he is, makes us sojourners and exiles in this world. And as we break the bread, as we pour out the wine, or the wafer and the juice, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ dies so that we may live. So that we may live. See, his broken body, his blood is offered and poured out for us. It's through him and through this act that we can actually have the power to proclaim his son. If you're here, if you're here this morning, or if you're on this live stream and you don't believe, that's okay. You don't need to participate. But if this is something that you want to know more about, you can email me, and I'd love to introduce you to Jesus for the first time. So, Christ City, hear the words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come then, for all is ready. We come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are penitent. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. Your communion cup is located below your seats. Josh will lead us in song. Participate when you're ready as you sing.